Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we are discussing CIC issue number 133, The Priesthood of Every Believer. You can find that at the website cicministry.org. So now last week we had mentioned discernment by publishing house. And afterwards we realized we probably ought to issue a little clarification on that. So you want to tell us what you thought of after we were done recording? Yes, because afterwards I was reading some material about oneness Pentecostalism, which is they have their own publishing house. Okay. And I, or what about the cults like Jehovah Witnesses? Right. Everything's from the Watchtower Society. Okay. Or there's publishing houses that are only dedicated to certain false doctrines. Right. And I noticed that when I was at a booksellers convention one time. So if there's a publishing house that only publishes the teachings of the Mormon church or the Unitarian Universalist church or some schismatic group that's not really Christian, which we would call a cult. Okay. Discernment can easily be done. It's not that Watchtower Society might not have something somewhere that's accurate, but you can't get doctrine from that because we know they're a cult and they're heretical. Right. But I'm talking about big publishing houses that have published various Christian books like Baker, Erdman's, Zondervan, if I just look down the shelf here. Yeah, Thomas um, Nelson, there's lots of them. That are looking at different sources that are not dedicated to one uh, doctrine. Okay. Like the the Theosophical Society, I found in my ARC library that. What happens that ought not to happen is that one of these big publishing houses will publish something we disagree with, and then publish a series of commentaries that are well done. And we say, you can't use the commentaries because they also publish this other thing I don't like. Right. Or that we know to be wrong. If we keep doing that enough, we're going to take the tools away from Christians to be able to discern. Yes. And so honestly, I think we could warn the other way too. Just because something was published by, say, a Reformation Trust, that doesn't mean you should blindly accept everything they said. Right. The more parochial we are, the less we're allowing doctrine to be judged. Yes. We're parochial. And the one that I'm most burdened to to deal with soon is the issue of post-millennialism. I think it's probably the biggest and most widespread view that has harmed people for centuries. And you can find that in lots of different groups. Yes. So absolutely. So therefore, if it's a cult, if it's a theosophical society, the Moonies, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, that we know are not going to publish the truth unless it was by accident. Okay. Well, you do well to avoid that or consult discernment ministries that 
explain why it's wrong. Yes. When it comes to studying the Greek, understanding the text, reading scholarly works, reading theological journal articles, we need to have an educated church that can do discernment by using objective standards. All right. Last week, we were discussing our right and ability to judge doctrine. And we showed that that was a right given to every believer, not reserved for certain ecclesiastical authorities. One of the primary issues we need to understand then is the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura. Do you want to explain that to us? Yeah, that means that scripture alone is God's word, and any material that added to it later doesn't have the same binding authority that scripture does, and it's not inerrant like scripture is. So there's a qualitative uh, difference and a categorical difference, meaning scripture is uniquely God-breathed and God-inspired, and it's not the same as the decrees of church councils or anything else beyond scripture that wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the issue then at the Reformation, the issue that Luther was dealing with was the Catholic Church was reserving that for themselves. They had their church councils, they had their creeds, and you just had to agree with what they said. Well, now today we see the same thing happening in reform circles where creedalism is, is regarded as something that's very important. Doesn't that just end up in the same situation where the creed has determined this, therefore it's true? Yeah, we, we've talked about that. In fact, uh, CAC issue 140 was on that topic. Yes. And we're not saying that the Christological creeds the doctrine of the Trinity, with it, which is true and necessary, and things that have been formulated and understood in church history are therefore wrong, or we should just depart from them. Even Luther, and we're talking about his uh, article about the priesthood of every believer, believed that we should hold to the Christological creeds. Yes. And if the creeds are right, they are right because the doctrine can be found in Scripture. So still, right. Scripture is the authority, not the creed. That's exactly right. And we would be well uh, advised to pay attention and to be cognizant of the fact that if someone suddenly decides they have some new version of the Trinity, or they reject the Trinity, or their oneness, or they believe that very doctrine of God is wrong. We know that that is really bad and it's not biblical, but every generation of Christians needs to be able to study, to know the truth, to know what the Bible said, and defend these things directly from Scripture. Right. Because we, and... if church authorities say, well, we are ancient, we are many, therefore we are right, which is what they said to Luther, then people get skeptical. And sometimes they depart from everything. Yes, they do. And so when uh, we talk about Bereans in Acts, when Paul and the others went and taught that Messiah, who would come and suffer and die and be raised on the third day, and the, the scriptures taught that, those that were noble-minded searched the Old Testament scriptures to 
to see whether that was true. How much more do we need to continually search the scripture, including the New Testament scriptures, to tell us about the teachings of Christ and his apostles, and have already dealt with a lot of the same problems and errors and difficulties that we see even today. So biblical ignorance really is appalling, given the fact that we have the tools to study. We do. And you know, we have we have the ability, we have the tools. There's no reason why we can't search God's word and judge doctrine accordingly. Right. And so what I wrote about this under the heading to judge doctrines from this in this article about Luther and what he did, I said this scripture alone is God's inerrant and binding word, and teaching derived from scripture is only binding if it is accurately and logically derived from the text. All preaching is doctrine. Preaching is also called prophesying in passages such as 1 Corinthians 14. And we wrote an article about that, issue 95, Critical Issues Commentary, issue 95. Yes. You want to look that up. And so prophesying isn't a spontaneous some people say as ecstatic utterance, oh, God told me, and then they have to go preach. It's understanding the gospel, implications of the gospel, what's binding under Christ and his apostles, the new covenant teachings, and also everything that would be reasonably applied based on what we know. That's what we need to be able to do, whereas the Roman Catholic teaching magisterium and the various decrees of councils and popes said, no, we alone speak for God. You must listen to us. And we declare Luther to be anathema when he teaches justification by faith and so on. Right. You say in your article, Luther cited this passage in his claim that the priesthood of every believer included judging doctrine. It's, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 31. Let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Now, we did one or two episodes just on that passage last year, but it's worth reiterating here that this is this revelation is not new revelations from right. God based on things that are not found in scripture. This revelation is understanding scripture and teaching it to others and that teaching being judged by the believers around them. Exactly. So we have written so much about this and done a lot of podcasts on it. And the fact is that some have determined that the reason that there are so many um, dead or unspiritual or uninspired Christians in various churches is that they're following creeds and councils and they're believing certain things, but they reject all doctrine and say they have direct inspiration. Okay. So that is not what this is about. And it's about as we open the scriptures in Bible classes, it's not appropriate to interrupt a preacher in the middle of a sermon 
Right. Because that's not decently and in order. But whatever's preached is judgeable. What we do is have a Bible class every week where people can interact with the scriptures and perhaps have a better reading or realizing what applies to our situation today. Right. And we all really enjoy that time. It's not only when we kind of really get to know one another, but it's good to be able to have that time to ask questions and bring up cross-references and, and wrestle through God's word together. And learn from one another. And we have, over the decades that I've been doing this, you know, under a couple of different groups, sometimes someone will come in that's been trained in some other version and want to bring out their idea. Some say, well, a revelation is something you get when you stay up all night and you get this mystical dream or vision. But that has to be judged by scripture. Right. And what's the content? What, what do you claim God is saying to you? And is it something that's biblical? Okay. So, and that's, that's how we judge doctrine. What right. does the Bible say? And not even just, I mean, proof texting has its own problems too. We need to look at what does the Bible say? Is that the point of this passage? Does the context support this idea? Just because somebody tosses you one Bible verse that says that, well, so here's why I believe this. We, we need to look at the whole context of scripture. Right. Recently, I've been preaching and teaching from First Corinthians and doing reviews and previews because it's a long book. And so right now I'm preparing to go into chapter three. Okay. But the thing that created the problem early in my Christian life was that the groups I was part of often practiced jumping around from proof text to proof text and not teach verse by verse through the Bible. Okay. And so when we do that, we're not really coming to know and apply the whole counsel of God. Right. And so if you say, well, it says this here and this here and this here and this over there, and you put it all together, and that's what we need to believe, we need to look at the passage in front of us, including this one in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 to 31. At one point, I hosted a pastor's meeting, mostly of charismatic Pentecostal pastors, and we'd looked at these things. The fact is that if Paul was indeed saying, each one of you can be a prophet, and if somebody speaks some direct mystical thing that comes into their mind or claim that they had something God told them, and the other judge would be, I think God said this, this, and this. And then the others say, well, no, I think maybe God says this. And so you have the subjective judging the subjective and you have no discernment. Right. That's not how this works. Exactly. If you have to have an objective standard that can be used to judge doctrine, and that's scripture alone, and taking proof texts from here and there, and not looking at what Paul meant in the context, you can come up with a lot of bad doctrine. And so people can be taught in the local church they can be educated, they can learn how to read the text and not get into some 
corner where somebody already figured this out and we learn, we learn and we grow. Not beyond scripture, we grow in our knowledge of the faith and the gospels, the gospel and the implications thereof. In your article, you say that the term revelation was used does not mean it must have been new revelation previously unknown to the church. And then you go on to show some other examples here. Let's just make sure our listeners really understand how revelation was being used by Paul. Yes, and if we look at these examples, we'll see that doesn't mean new revelation beyond Scripture or some direct inspired utterance that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is the theme of 1 Corinthians, but it can be used within a range of meanings. Okay. And as I've been preaching recently through 1 Corinthians, the problem was schisms and factions and people choosing their favorite preacher, even valid ones like Paul, Peter, Apollos. They even wanted to divide Christ and that was in first corinthians chapter one and two and so on okay so what paul is arguing and speaking by divine revelation as god's apostle first corinthians 15 next chapter goes into that he's an apostle is that the gospel and the body of christ is not divided based on personal preferences personalities or who our favorite preacher. Okay. They have many false teachings and ideas covered in chapters three, four, five, six, as you go on, and misunderstanding of gifts. So some have claimed that the gifts have ceased and gone to the other extreme and said that, therefore, at this point, they were filling in lacking revelation before the closing of the canon. That's a really common position. Most it, that would call themselves a cessationist hold that position. Right. And it's a tempting position to take because then you can just dismiss a lot. Okay. Say, well, the gifts ceased, or at least some of the gifts, or the revelatory gifts. But it doesn't fit with the context here. Right. The schisms were going on, and the revelation of Christ crucified was already given. And so, therefore, a better approach and a more biblical approach is to point out that there's a range of meaning for the term revelation, and that uh, a church that's already a problem church, as far as the rest of First and Second Corinthians would tell us, is not going to be trusted by Paul to say, get up and have a spontaneous utterance from the Spirit, and that's filling in something that hasn't come from the apostles. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then the others decide that it is. If that, that's not what it says, and it really doesn't satisfy people who need to be corrected. Okay. Because that's not a good argument. I'm not trying to shame anyone who's made that argument, because many have done so. But I think a better approach and a more biblical approach that doesn't create schisms in the church, which we don't want, is to point out how Paul used the term revelation and 
what it means in the context within the range of meanings. And so what I did in this article is pointed out that the term revelation, same Greek word, okay? Okay. Used uh, elsewhere that would have a range of meaning that would help us understand this. So that one of the examples is Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Okay. And let me show, uh, I think, a better approach to understanding what it means here in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 to 31. One, I'll just read that, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the same knowledge, and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So there, in that context, the term revelation meant better and more profound um, application of what God has done, of, of the, the idea of the inheritance, which is already here. What does that mean in this context? Was it a, what does it mean to have hope? What does it mean to be one in Christ through the gospel? That term means that in Ephesians, which Paul wrote. And I believe that that's the valid way to look at this. Yes. So these revelations are understanding from Scripture. And it... Gospel implications will give us hope and joy. Yes. Spontaneous utterances from the subjective realm of what might be the Holy Spirit or the spirits or the person's imagination confuse the flock. Right. These... Yeah. these we can have hope and, and joy and peace in the promises of God because we can read them and understand them and know them. And we can't have any hope in, in random utterances that may or may not be from God. Right. And as I'm going through first Corinthians at gospel of grace fellowship right now, when I'm preaching, we're looking at some of the terminology and it's really amazing. Okay. The tools we have with logos Bible software and other tools my ability to dig into the Greek that I was taught in the 70s is way more helpful now with these tools. And so the word for judge, okay, and uh, is a word that can be used to examine the quality of something. Okay. Put something to the test and see if it's genuine. So if we're reading through a scripture and somebody says, here's what that means, it means, and then something that really doesn't follow from the text. Okay. The way you judge is to put something to the test to see if it's genuine. So if the Lord Jesus would give the church a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, Paul prays that their eyes of our heart would be enlightened. So you'll know what? The hope of his calling. Yes. How many times is that the issue we're dealing with? Right. What is the hope of his calling? What does it mean to have been called? Is there a universal call? Is there uh, an in internal or a special call that is effectual to save? Even that is controversial. Yes, it sure is. So through Ephesians, I had to bring that out. And then in Sunday school, 
the next time or whenever I'm doing Sunday school, we can discuss that when new people come. Most of the time they've heard, well, God calls everybody and they don't understand. They, as if the hope of his calling means we volunteered. Right. That's what people think. That it's their default position. Mm -hmm. The context, and so that can be judged. Is my reading of Ephesians 1, 17, 18, that the hope of his calling, the enlightenment, and the riches of the glory of his inheritance, is that eternal? Is it dependent on man figuring out what demons over what city that comes up in Ephesians? Or is it something we have in Christ by faith and that God will cause us to grow into? And he uses the scripture to help us do that. Okay. So you say in your article, Christian teaching about this hope is doctrine that can rightly be called revelation because it concerns revealed truth and its various implications. Right. That's why we need to have a biblically literate church, meaning believers who are taught the word of God, and they pray for one another, and we encourage one another, and we search the scriptures together and not have someone ruling over everybody else because they have a more dominant personality. Right. And that happens quite a bit. Someone mentioned that to me just last week that um, it's very typical. Someone that's been coming this new, that most churches, if you even question the teacher, you're in trouble. Oh, no. And so we don't have the, maybe we don't have popes and um, the teaching magisterium and all of this stuff, but we do have oftentimes dominant personalities or groups that don't dare question or they'll be ostracized by everybody. Right. And so the faith has been handed over to the saints once for all. Yes. We have the scripture. We have better tools than they did in Luther's day because we can publish scriptures and we can compare that and we can learn what's said here and be literate in the Bible. And so someone's uh, oratory skills and dominant personality will create schisms, but it doesn't help us understand the truth. And that's the very problem that Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians. Do you have anything you'd like to add before we wrap up for today? We need to encourage one another in this, as I cited at the end here, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Paul prayed that God, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, by the way, this is Trinitarian. Yes. Okay. And uh, that as our eyes are open to implications of Scripture that's right there in front of us, we should um, prophesy in the sense that in the meeting, this is, we can say it's not right that we claim Apollos had some different gospel than Paul, like they were doing in Corinth. Okay. If someone tries to say that, we can say, wait a second, no. And we can go back to Acts and show that that's not the case. And that's prophesying and judging doctrine. All right. We are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. 
You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles at the website, cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramis and Bobby Wade. We'll see you next week.